In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the resurrected spirit body. If you didn't get handouts, there are handouts on both ends and chairs. There should be two of them. studies of, the, of two lengthy scriptures that will take up most of our time this evening. The Old Testament speaks of resur resurrection pretty explicitly in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 and Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. And apart from those two scriptures, uh, it's hard to tell in some cases whether, the, whether there's a resurrection being considered or not. Uh, sometimes being in the depths of sorrow or something like that could be considered like death and, and uh, rejuvenation after being through a, a period of time like that um, can feel like resurrection. And so sometimes uh, death and resurrection are used in an allegorical way in the Old Testament. But here are a couple of passages, and I relied, I, I went back into some, some uh, Judaism sites to see what passages in their Old Testament, in their Bible, they considered to be the most direct indications of the resurrection, and these are the two that, they, that were consistently mentioned. There are others that we might mention as well. I'll spare you those right now, but <clears throat> notice that neither one of those passages is in the first five books of the Old Testament, and the first five books of the Old Testament were the only um, the only books of the Old Testament that the Sadducees took any stock in, and that they were the only ones that they considered to be part of their canon or inspired, you might say. And so that would explain why the uh, Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. But after the destruction of Jerusalem, the uh, rabbinical schools continued to exist and the priesthood did not. And the priesthood was, was connected more with Sadduceeism and the rabbinical schools more with Phariseeism. And so the Pharisees kind of won that battle after the destruction of Jerusalem. There was no more temple, so what's, what's the need for the order of the priesthood and for the traditions of the priesthood? And so in modern Judaism, most modern Jews consider that there, believe that there will be a resurrection. They refer to the life to come. Uh, it's a kind of a vague term, but that was the, that's the term that Jews use today to describe the resurrection. And it's vague because not a lot is known by the Jews about what that resurrection might look like. We have more information, far more information in the New Testament than they had available to them in the Old Testament. Of course, Paul being a Pharisee would have understood the springboard for um, the ideas that are presented by, by him and his writings, especially in the New Testament. Uh, he would have been intimate with that information, and so he comfortably moves from Old Testament to New Testament as he talks about these things. There is, so as I say, there was no such clear information regarding the resurrection in the Torah. You might find a scant reference in the book of Deuteronomy. You might find some other passages that you 
I think, talk clearly about the resurrection, but it was less clear, I think, probably, probably to those who lived at the time that Moses wrote these things and years subsequent. So, uh, so again, I'm just now putting up on the board, I got behind in my slide. Since the Sadducees accepted only the Torah, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And now the Greeks, during Paul's day, uh, those who were coming out of Hellenism, thought the idea of resurrection was laughable. Uh, the idea that a person could be resurrected, they just thought was a, a, a funny idea. And you see that very clearly in Acts chapter 17 when Paul's preaching on Mars Hill. And he said that at the end of the passage where it talks about uh, Paul speaking of the resurrection, um, many people just kind of laughed him off at that point. But to Jesus and the apostles, the resurrection was absolutely essential. And you can imagine why it would be. Jesus died and was resurrected, not for nothing, uh, but to launch a new system of thought uh, that's based on death, burial, resurrection. Baptism, death, burial, and resurrection. When we die, death, burial, and resurrection. So this theme of death, burial, and resurrection recurs throughout our lives as Christians as it does, uh, as it um, appears first in the life of Christ. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Yes, James. You raise an in interesting question. Why do you think that the Pharisees believed in resurrection? I think it's because they accepted those later books of the Old Testament as being part of their canon. So the passage that I showed you in Daniel and Isaiah that speak pretty directly about resurrection and other uh, scriptures in Job that sort of talk about resurrection in more of a theoretical sense, uh, they would have accepted those passages as part of their canon, and so they would have, would have uh, believed in this, in the, they would have a foundation in scripture for it. Sadducees lack that foundation. <clears throat> I can't say unequivocally that that's why. Of course, we lack a lot of that history in between the Testaments, but it seems to make sense. So I'm going to just start crawling through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then there'll come a time when we'll skip a few verses. But this is pretty good, pretty important as foundational information. And so I'm going to go line by line through this first couple of verses here. Now I would remind you, brothers, apparently there had been some question about the resurrection that had occurred, and they would written to Paul about it in a letter, and Paul's answering questions that they asked in their letter. And he says, now concerning this, and now concerning that, now we're concerning the resurrection. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Um, these words, the gospel, are thrown around quite a bit, um, and they have sometimes taken on a life of their own. But Paul's going to tell us what the real gospel is. He's going to tell us what the gospel is according to the Spirit of God that gave it to him. He said, the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand. There's a, he, he implies here that if you leave this gospel, you have, you're no longer standing. You're, you've fallen, in other words. If you, don't, if you don't buy into this gospel, you've just missed it. And by which you are being saved. So it's by this gospel that he's about to convey to us that we are being saved, not just that we were saved. And I think that that's also true. But he here chooses to, to focus on the fact that 
We are continually saved by standing in this gospel, and when we leave this gospel, we're no longer safe. If you, if you hold fast to the word, he says, the, uh, the word I preached to you. Okay, so what's that word? Uh, oh, he goes, Fred, I mean, you, you want to talk about emphasis now. Paul is really bearing down on this. If you get the idea that Paul thinks this is kind of important. <laughs> Um, the gospel in which you stand, by which you're being saved, and if you don't believe it, you have believed, he says, in vain. Your faith is worthless. Okay, so whatever it is he's about to say is pretty important, and so here it is. Here's the gospel that Paul's talking about. For I delivered to you as of the first importance, again, look how hard he's bearing down on this, in case you missed it the first four times, he said how important this is. This is of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died, one, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. I think that in accordance with the scriptures, very important. He calls upon the Old Testament as witness to the death of the Christ. And I think he might well uh, point to Isaiah 53, don't you think? The suffering servant and the the uh, the death and his body being buried in the tomb of a rich man and so forth so Christ died in accordance with scripture so it was planned that way and it happened that way two that he was buried three that he was raised on the third day in a, in accordance with scripture so again he says this was testified in the Old Testament by the prophets and it came to pass just as they said so we have the Old Testament prophets as witness that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, in accordance with scripture, and four, <laughs> that he appeared. He appeared, and this is important too, isn't it? That he appeared to some people after he was raised from the dead. Otherwise, why should anybody believe it, right? So, um, Thomas certainly would not have. He required a fair amount of proof. And the apostles who first went to the tomb of Jesus uh, were incredulous uh, when they found the tomb empty. Where have you laid him? Where have you taken him? They, they didn't immediately recognize, well, he's risen. It, this had to be proven out to them. And so the fourth point is also very important, that he appeared to Peter, to Cephas, then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, <clears throat> as one untimely born, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. <clears throat> all right. So here's the gospel, plain and simple. Christ died according to the scripture. He was buried. He was raised according to the scripture. And he appeared to many people. And then he goes into this long argument that about, well, what if you don't accept that Christ was raised? Well, basically he says, then our entire belief system is completely out of whack. We've got no reason to believe what we believe. We've got no, belief, no reason to believe the preachers. We've got no reason to suffer. He says, Paul says we're suffering because of the things that we're saying. We've been beaten. We're being stoned. Why are we going through all that? And why are pe people being baptized for a dead guy? If the dead are not raised, why are people being baptized for somebody who's dead? But he is raised, he says. 
Okay, so, so now we get to the crux of the matter for tonight's lesson. And he, he starts out by saying in verses 35 and 36, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And I don't really, I can't really say that I understand. Maybe you all can bring some, shed some light on this. Why does Paul seem to chide the people who ask the question by saying, you foolish ones? I don't, I don't really quite get that. He'll say, you foolish ones, but then he'll go on and answer the question. <laughs> it's not like, you foolish ones, and then just walks away. <laughs> he says, you foolish ones, and then he t tells them the answer to the questions that they're asking. Seems to me he's, he's uh, playing on what we ought to know about planting seeds. Okay. They have to be dead before you plant them or they rot. Okay. I don't know. That's all well, he does go on to say that. Yeah. I kind of take it, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I kind of take it like I used to talk to my kids when they were little. <laughs> you silly girl. <laughs> Why would you ask a question like that? Okay, here's the answer. <laughs> that's a typical dad kind of a response. I don't know if that's what he's doing. But you're dead in your sins, you're not dead in the body. Okay, that's right. So that's, your, that's your, your body is still moving around, but yeah, uh, yeah. okay. How are the dead raised? But, he, but here he is talking about a bodily resurrection. He's talking about when your body dies, what's going to happen after we're dead, we're planted, and then we're going to come back up as something else. We're going to come back, come back up as something else. And this is where the analogy of the seed comes in. The seed looks like one thing. You put it in the ground, and then it comes up. It looks like something else. But what comes up is characteristic of that particular kind of seed. So there is some correspondence between the seed, that which is planted, and that which comes up. But don't expect it to look exactly the same. Okay, so here's the spirit body. First of all, take a look at this handout of the scriptures, the two scriptures, and let's look at the top one. And here, I just have 1 Corinthians 15, 39 to 49 uh, spelled out, and here you see some of those arguments. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? What kind of body do they... Some people have the idea that when you die, your spirit just kind of floats around. It's not connected to anything anymore. And Paul is saying, no, there is actually a body that the spirit comes back in. But it's not like the body that it left, okay? So that's going to be the argument through this. And this is all going to turn out to be a comparison between those two bodies. What you sow does not come, come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is, what you, um, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So there it is. You expect there to be some correspondence between the seed and the body, but they're not the same. Uh, they don't look alike. For not all, not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another kind for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. So he's using all these different analogies to show us that these bodies are different. They're made by God to suit the purpose. And the purpose of the second body is different than the, than the purpose of the first one. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. So different bodies have different glories, he says. 
which one do you think is going to be the more glorious? The, the now body? Well, I hope it's the later body. <laughs> I really hope so. Um, this body has taken its beatings. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. The stars differ from other stars in their glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Okay, so now listen, look at the body now. The, the body that gets planted is one that dies forever. That once it's dead, it perishes. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now, I've played a little trick with the wording of this passage um, because your Bible probably says it's sown a natural body. But what I'm trying to draw attention to here is the, the word for nat the word that's translated as natural in most of the modern translations, even most of the old translations, is the word that, that is usually translated as soul. Okay? So I put soulful, and this is not, we're not talking about jazz music here. We're, <laughs> it's just taking the word soul and making an adjective, adjective out of it so we can describe a body. But this is the body connected to the soul, connected to the personage. Remember at the beginning of the class we talked about the different definitions. We talked about a definition of soul and a definition of spirit. And spirit is the higher nature. The soul is basically your, your personage, okay? So this is a body that's ma matched to the personage. This is a body that's matched, to, or this is a body that's, that's matched to who you are in the flesh. But it is raised a spiritual body, okay? So that's that word, we, we, when we talked about the definitions of words, we talked about the definition of soul and the de definition of spirit. This, so this is, uh, uh, pneumaticos, which is the adjective form of pneuma that we saw at the beginning. So it's sown a soul body and it's raised a spirit body. If He says if there is a soul body, there is also a spirit body. <coughs> Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And he's talking about Christ there, the last Adam. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the soulful, the, the, the natural, then the spiritual. So the spiritual body comes after the soul body. Once it, when the soul body is planted, the spirit body comes forward, comes forth from it. For the first man was from earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Okay? So, what kind of body is it going to be? It's going to be matched to the spirit. It's going to be the, the body that is fitted to the man from heaven. It's going to be like Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. We're going to be given a body like his body. For the first man was from the earth, the man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. All right, so verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So he talks about that future tense. Here we go. 
So the spirit body, we have comparison of two bodies, literally the soul body and the spirit body. I have replaced the Greek psuchikos with, the, with soulful, most often translated as natural. I've replaced Greek pneumatikos with spiritual. Okay, here is that comparison line by line, <clears throat> verse, beginning in verse 37 through verse 49 on that second handout that I gave you. So you can take this one home with you. So this is the comparison between the two bodies. The soma sukikos is what goes into the ground. The soma pneumatikos is what comes out of the ground. The fleshly body, or the, the uh, soul body, is the flesh of an earthly body. The spirit body is the flesh of a heavenly body. It has, there's a glory to the earthly body. There is a glory of the heavenly body. There is a perishable, the, the uh, soul body is perishable. The spirit body is imperishable and re in reference to the resurrection. The old body is of dishonor. The new body is of glory and honor that, of, that which is, of that which is raised. The old body is weakness of what is sown. The new body is the power of that which is raised. The old body is of soul nature of what is sown. The new body is of spirit nature of that which is raised. The old body is the first man, which is from the earth. The new body is the second man, which is from heaven. The old body is the image of the man of dust. That's back, reference back to the book of Genesis. And the new body is the image of the man of heaven. I don't know how the rest of you are doing, but I'm roasting up here. Okay. So he goes on in verse 50 to say, and I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So I've highlighted the things in here that, that seem to contrast. Flesh and blood cannot enter the, in, inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We'll be changed. The dead will be raised imperishable. We'll be changed. He repeats that. For, he says in verse 53, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and this is a quotation probably from, um, from uh, Isaiah 25, verse 8, I believe, death is swallowed up. And I put death is swallowed up in quotes because that's the part that's, that's repeated from Isaiah 25. Um, he goes, he it further embellishes that by saying death is swallowed up in victory. <coughs> okay. And then the next uh, little phrase that follows after that, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? That seems to be a quotation more from Hosea and a different point is being made from that. That's why I separated, that's why I stopped it right here. I think he's making a different point from the second quotation than he's making from the first one. Yes, sir. The, the perishable versus the mortal. 
Is he just trying to emphasize what is going to be changed? You know, this is very typical in Hebrew writing, especially where you have this kind of parallelism from one part of a verse to another. So he says perishable, imperishable, then he says mortal, immortal. So it's just kind of re-emphasizing the same point by stating it two different ways. And they, and they are different words. Perishable is like something that rots, and imperishable is something that, that never does. Mortal has literally to do with death, and immortality has to do with life, if you look at the, the Greek words there. Um, so they are contrasts, and, and they're, they're parallel thoughts, but they're just stated slightly different, differently, I think, for emphasis. Okay, any questions about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I can't possibly answer? <laughs> yes, sir. This, uh, I've always kind of viewed it this way, and I don't know if this is right, but there's kind of three parts to man. There's the physical, and I think we'll get to it, the kind of the tent, the dwelling, right? And then there's this, the soul, you're kind of calling it, I think of it in terms of like the spirit of life, the fact that you are alive, that we're talking, we're interacting, there's that life that that God created, and then your spirit that returns back to God that will be judged. Is that, is that kind of what these verses are telling us, or am I missing some pieces there? Well, it, it, you, the question that you're asking has a really complicated answer. I'm not sure I can answer it in the time we have here. Um, if you were to do a more thorough study of all of the different facets of humanity that, that uh, Paul himself emphasizes in all of his writings, you would have a list that's about a dozen words long. It would include concepts like consciousness and mind, and a part different from body is flesh. That Those are two different words. Soma is for body, that's the whole thing. Flesh is the stuff that it's made out of. And, and each one of these has a different Greek term, and each one had a kind of a, a different um, range of usage in Greek. Paul is a master of language of those both Hebrew and Greek, and so he can he can navigate um, you know the, the Old Testament usages uh, in the Septuagint, which Paul would have had available to him. The Greek Old Testament, he would have had access. He would have had knowledge of how all of these words were originally used in the Old <coughs> Testament Greek, and then make comparisons with New Testament Greek. So it's really more complicated than you say, but I think the basic point that you're making is, is correct. Now, you'll see some passages of scripture also to complicate matters, if, if, if they're in need of further complication, um, where the soul also seems to transfer into the afterlife. So you have both spirit and soul, and explicitly so, it's not, it's not an accident, it's not sometimes he uses the word soul for spirit, you have spirit and soul together transferring into the afterlife, whereas body never does. So the body is kind of the part that gets discarded. You receive a new body that's fitted to the spirit, and this, the soul, the personage, we might say, and the spirit survive into the afterlife. Um, so good question. I probably confused you more than I helped you, but uh, that's the best I can do in this amount of time. Yes, sir. We kind of, I think you kind of breezed over talking about like the, the corruptible that can't inherit the incorruptible or the different words that we was used, but 
it almost seems like there's an undertone of preparation here. Um, you know, we, we are told we're going to be co-heirs with Jesus mm -hmm. and how that looks, you know, we could spend a lifetime on, but it, it, it makes me think of when, it, when God talks about like, I work best in your weakness mm -hmm. and how these physical bodies are sown in dishonor um, and uh, verse 49 when it says just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven mm -hmm. I have a footnote that says it may some manuscripts say let us bear the image of the man of heaven mm -hmm. and so this kind of calls my mind back to the like like Satan and the angels that left their proper place, whatever that looks like, uh, seems as though there is this temptation for those who have this kind of heavenly glory to sort of let it get to their heads. And so I almost wonder if part of why, part of why God chose to set up the physical world in the way that he did and this reliance on him was to teach us that even once we get this this end game, this heavenly glory, you're still going to have to look to me because I gave it to you. So I don't know, this lets the question, but just an interesting undertone that I picked up. Yeah. In answer to your original question, yes, I glossed over a lot of things here. That we, <laughs> spend, we could spend a whole nother, uh, another, another whole, I hate, I hate the words, a whole nother, because another isn't a word, but another whole uh, trimester uh, teasing out. Um, but thank you for bringing that up. Without a doubt, uh, a lot of this is connected to, to being prepared because we'll, we'll have a class, uh, not many class sessions from now that's entitled something like uh, Purify Both Body and Spirit. Um, so the, the attempt that, that we're left with is to try to align our, our bodies with our spirit. You could get the idea from some of the passages that we've read, including most notably Romans chapter 7, where Paul has this battle with his flesh. That, and he says, in my flesh there dwells no good thing, that, that flesh is just all bad right from the beginning, and, and so there's nothing that we can do to, to uh, redeem it. Well, there were some people who thought that way. But if you think back to creation, when God created flesh for the first time, what did he say about it? It was good. So... There is something about flesh that's good. Paul, at the moment that he's feeling this conflict within himself, thinks that there's nothing good about it because he has to battle with it. But, but God put this all in place and there's something good about it. It was, intent, it was intended. It was according to his plan. Of course, that was before the fall. Uh, some people claim then that ever since the fall, flesh has only been bad, but I think we could, we could make uh, adequate argument from other passages of scripture that, uh, that our flesh can be purified and, and brought into alignment with, with uh, the will of Christ. So um, that may be a, a transient state for us since we continue to battle with sin, but nevertheless, <clears throat> it's not like the old Gnostic idea that that the body, body is totally bad and that the spirits are good and near the twain shall meet sort of idea. Any other question before we move on to another passage? 
right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. This is another terrible place for a chapter break um, because chapter 5 is clearly a continuation of the same thought in chapter 4. Um, you'll see some of the same kind of language that Paul is using in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, repeated here in the second letter to the Corinthians. And he's talking about some of the th horrible things that the apostles have suffered um, as a result of just trying to go about preaching the word. And they're terribly beat up, and Paul's got this thorn in the flesh that he mentions also here in the book of 2 Corinthians that's really bearing on him. He, he's really uh, struggling with whatever that is. But here's what he, here's how he encourages us as he encourages himself. So we do not lose heart, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, I think he's talking about our spirit there, is being renewed day by day. For this light, notice the specific words here, light and momentary, light and momentary affliction is preparing us for it and eternal, in contrast to momentary, weight, in contrast to light, of glory. And that word glory literally means weighty. So again, he's contrasting weighty with light. So you have a light momentary affliction that is preparing us for an eternal weight of weightiness beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, so now we have the seen and the unseen. Not the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Remember earlier in the class when I talked about the television screen being kind of a projection of a reality that's taking place someplace else? Here he's saying that there is a seen and there's an unseen, and that the seen is not as important, is not as authentic, not as genuine or true as that which is not seen. So we kind of have to look at what's seen and imagine that which is unseen. But that which is unseen is eternal. It's better. All right. Now that takes us through verse 18, but here's chapter 5 and verse, verse 1. For, he continues, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now I'd like to, I probably should have highlighted tent and building. Remember the, in the Old Testament they started out with a tabernacle. David wasn't satisfied with God living in tents, so he had the intention of building a temple, and of course David didn't build that temple, but he did everything that was necessary right up to the point of building it. He made all the preparations and plans, and then Solomon built it. So God went from dwelling in a tent to dwelling in a temple. And we, he says, are going to go from dwelling in a tent, this earthly tent, to a permanent building. A building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. I'm beginning to appreciate that more as I get older. Mm -hmm. 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Okay? So we're going to take off these old clothes and put on new clothes. It's not that we're going to be unclothed. It's not that we're going to be spirits floating around out there somewhere. We're going to be clothed upon. He says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would, that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That is, what is subject to death may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. How do we know that any of this is going to happen? God gave us a guarantee. What sign do we have of a guarantee? Well, we can't see it, but I can assure you that God can. He gave us his spirit. Um, I was thinking one day as I was, if you've been in a class like this before, you may have heard, heard me use the same analogy, if so, you can sleep for a minute. I was standing on the, I think the, 30th or 40th floor, I can't remember, of a hotel in China, in a huge city, a city of 17 million people, looking down at the street at night, and there were just people there, as in most places, cities in China, there are just people everywhere. I mean, it's just a sea of black hair. <laughs> and from standing up on that 40th, 30th, or 40th floor, looking down, those people just looked like little spots on the, on the sidewalk just look like ants crawling everywhere. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, this is kind of the view that God has of the world. Um, this is what God sees when he looks down. And um, yet, something unique about God's people is that God can see his spirit in them from up there. So at night, imagine what that might look like. You got all this, all these ants crawling around here, but there's one that's a firefly. <laughs> there's one that's lit up. <laughs> that's the one that got, that's got his spirit, and he recognizes that spirit in that person. He knows, the scripture says, those who are his. It may, may be ambiguous to us. We may not know who are, who are his. Some of us have struggled knowing whether we are his. But I can assure you that with God, there's no such ambiguity. He knows whether his spirit is in you or not, and he can see it. And that's the guarantee we have of the resurrection. If we have God's spirit in us, if we belong to God, we have his spirit in us, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If you want to read it, this I think is further proof of that. He who has prepared us for this thing, what thing is he talking about? This resurrected body. He who has prepared us for this, th this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. This is not a trivial matter. It matters whether we have the spirit of God in us or not. Because that's our guarantee that there's going to be a resurrection for us. Very, very important. All right, so we've got four more minutes for a summary and then maybe a comment or two. 
We presently have a body that is suited to our personage, and I'm sorry, I can't come up with a better word than that, and I've struggled mightily to do so. I've checked the thesauruses and everything else, just can't come up with a better word than that. Our soul, our personage. We will not be unclothed, but further clothed. We will have a body that is finally then suited to our spirit. This body is not a suitable home for our spirit. It's a suitable home for a soul, for a personage, but it's not a suitable place for a spirit. There, there is coming a time when we'll have a body that's fitted, that is matched perfectly to our spirit, and it'll be better than the one that we're in now. It'll be better, it'll be stronger, it'll be more glorious, and it will be permanent. Not like a tent, but like a permanent structure. Our spirit will finally have a home. What questions do you all have, or what kind of comments would you like to make? You know, we were talking about, a little while ago, we were talking about spirit, body, and soul. I think probably everybody's born with a soul. I don't think you come in contact with the spirit until you're baptized. Really? Okay, see, I, I, I see that differently, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you because anytime you make a comment, I need to go check that out and think hard about it for a while because I, I respect what you say. Um, I think about it as we have a spirit, um, and uh, the spirit is the part that relates to God, um, but not all spirits relate to God in the same way, right? So there are spirits that have positive relationships with God, and then there are spirits that have poor relationships with God. There are spirits that have no relationship with God. There are spirits that have antagonistic relationships with God. And so our status may change over the course of our life as we, as we um, uh, go through different phases of our life with regards to our relationship with God. But I think the way that I have always uh, believed that is that, that we have a spirit, even though it's not, it's, it's not connected to God in the same way as it will be at the point when his spirit is upon us. Take that for what, that's, that's Darrell Dobbins talking, you take it for what it's worth, with a large dose of salt. Who else? Yes, sir. So um, the spirit as a guarantee, does that kind of tie back to Acts 2.38 where it talks about you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? I think so. Yeah. I can't prove that, but I think so. Um, and it only makes sense if, if it's at our baptism when we, when we um, come under the blood of Christ that we, be, that we are in Christ, then it certainly makes sense that when we're baptized we would receive that gift, which... By the way, this is not the only time that that's mentioned. Uh, Ephesians talks about the Spirit being our guarantee as, as well, and he talks about it being a seal. Um, you know what that meant in Romans time, Roman times, a wax seal that represented you. So the king had a wax seal, and nobody was allowed to, to make one like it. That would be a forgery. And any time he made a proclamation, he put his, he dripped some wax on there, and he put his seal on it, and that showed that it came from the king. The, the Holy Spirit is like that seal. It's from God, and it represents God, and any, anything like it would be a forgery. Um, it makes us official, as it were, uh, that we belong to him. And that's our guarantee. We've got the king's seal. Okay, very good. 
Thank you. I'm